Hello, and welcome back to The Worm. I'm your host, Ward Kamak, and today we're speaking with Mallory Legg. Mallory was actually one of the first people who I met at university, and since then, we've both gone on to discover and grow our passions. Mallory's known around town for her love of cooking, specifically her food Instagram, which is at Mallory's Calories with two S's, as well as a blog, which can be found at mallorycalories.substack.com, and that's just one S after calories, where she posts pictures, recipes, and anecdotes of all of the amazing things coming out of her kitchen. I'm always impressed to see what she's made, and somehow I always come across these posts when I'm super hungry and wishing I could cook like she does. In addition to her cooking Instagram and blog, Mallory has turned her passion for food into different jobs. During a summer off from St. Andrews, she worked as a line cook at Hawksmoor in London, and currently she writes a food and drink article for a lifestyle magazine called The Guide on everything from Maine lobster rolls to using plant-based ingredients in the kitchen to London's gastropub scene and where to find the best Negroni in Edinburgh. Mallory's articles for The Guide can be found at theguidemagazine.org slash food dash drink. All that being said, I'm really excited to, mel- to welcome Mallory on The Worm today. Hi, Mallory. Hi. <laughs> so to get us started, will you tell us first where you're from? Um, I grew up moving around a lot, but I'd say I'm definitely based out of Maine now. That's where my parents live. Um, yeah. Nice. That's more of a recent development, right? Yeah. I mean, we've been um, going to Maine my whole life. It's been a constant. We moved like 11 times or 12 times now. I lost track. Um, But we always grew up visiting my grandparents in Maine where they retired. And we eventually settled down and my parents got a house there and fixed it up. And that's where they've decided to call home and so when we go to visit um our parents we're always going to Maine Mm -hmm. yeah nice um and what do you study in St. Andrews I study social anthropology Mm -hmm. and what's your like niche within social anthro um I don't know I think that I lean more towards like social movements so I like right now I'm studying anthropology of politics and governance and also anthropology of catastrophe. So it's very like like psychological social anthropology in a way, thinking about like how people deal with you know, living in a capitalist world, the patriarchy, social movements. Mm-hmm. Um I think that's sort of like I like to focus a little bit more western because that's how I resonate I guess I take it because I want to learn more about myself Mm -hmm. yeah that totally makes sense yeah yeah I wish that I had taken social anthro yeah I love it yeah it's great (laughs) it sounds great um okay and then I always ask like a little fun question so mine for you is what's the go-to thing that you cook for yourself or what do you cook the most often oh that's a hard question um I don't really love to repeat recipes but I'd say like my comfort meal if I'm cooking nicely is like a nice piece of meat like a short rib or a steak with mm-hmm. potatoes and a good salad with rocket and parmesan yum best like yum that was your most recent post right yeah uh, my most recent post was short ribs with mashed potatoes yeah. and cabbage yeah really wow. good oh my gosh <laughs> um okay so to get into the questions where did your love of cooking begin um I grew up with two amazing parents and they both had jobs when I was growing up, but they always cooked dinners. We were never a takeaway family, um, sort of like the ingredient household. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were always cooking like these spectacular meals. And I thought that was normal until I came to university and I like spoke to friends about it. I I was meeting new people and we were talking about upbringings. Um, and I have friends whose parents never cooked for them and, you know, couldn't cook and just accepted that. Um, and so when I moved away to Scotland, um, I was, I guess, looking for hobbies. Like my goal was always to get into St. Andrews. And then once I got into St. Andrews, it just like, it's like, what do I do now? Mm -hmm. And COVID happened and we moved into an Airbnb. Um, and I had like a lot of these new friends coming over and a lot of them were British boys who were like fresh out of boarding school and didn't know how to take care of themselves. And so I would always have them over and we'd um, watch football and I would cook. 
and like trying to sort of give that like home cooked feeling that I grew up with because there was so much homesickness in COVID Mm -hmm. and eventually because I was cooking so much I had friends saying like oh Mallory you need to like start an Instagram sort of like a jokey funny haha Mallory's calories um so I made it and it was a joke at first really it was like for friends I was posting silly stories and things and then eventually I was like I don't really think that I want to do what I want to do when I grow up anymore, which was like being grassroots and social justice initiatives, which is great. But like that passion sort of was turning into the hobby and then like the hobby was turning into the passion. Mm. And I like finally got this motivation back and like I cared about something. And every time that I did something impressive that impressed me, I had this like insane feeling that I had never felt with anything other than sports in high school wow um and so yeah from there I just started like taking it seriously and like reading books and like almost studying but it's not studying because it's fun and like I want to do it Mm -hmm. um and eventually like we moved into a bigger flat and I was cooking for my flatmates and there were five of us and we'd have dinners and I was like this is something that I like want to keep doing forever Mm -hmm. and so it's now just what I'm pursuing you mentioned to me that you worked a summer job in high school right or the first couple summers in St. Andrews working at like a kitchen yeah did you ever feel the way that you feel now about cooking back then Mm. I think back then I felt so much purpose but I didn't necessarily know that it was with cooking I think I loved leading because I had such a leadership role in that position and I took a lot of pride in things that I put on the menu and but it what the thing about that place was it wasn't too complicated it was like soups and sandwiches and salads so I was taking the gratification that I was getting from producing those things and being like I love to be a leader like I love I love feeling like I did something at the end of the day I didn't necessarily link it to cooking though I've always loved food. So, like, I loved saying, yeah, I can make this really great salad dressing and I still use it. And But I didn't really turn into that passion yet. I don't think I had put my finger on what was making me so happy when I was doing it. Mm-hmm. True, Yeah, true. And it makes sense also that, like, your love of cooking really grew during COVID. Yeah. I totally get that. Because I remember also in halls, like, we would try to cook things in the, yeah. in the kitchens or, like, our... Um, charcuterie boards yeah we would make so many of those and they were great (laughs) and I was trying to think back I was like I don't remember Mallory being like this into cooking in the very beginning of first year so yeah yeah, that makes sense that it like developed when Mm -hmm. you had a kitchen and more of like a purpose to your cooking yeah yeah and I think like when I met you in first semester of first year like because I was grappling with the fact like I had achieved the goal that I was working toward for so many years Mm -hmm. I like really didn't know what I was doing and I sort of just like wallowed in it for a while because I didn't know what to do with myself um and then it's like yeah when you have that kitchen like you're sort of invited to do something um if you care about it and then like giving that like taking it and then giving it to someone else like feeding someone else Mm -hmm. like made me feel so happy I never cook for just myself I always am feeding people yeah and I think that's a huge part of my passion too totally yeah and I think St. Andrews has such a strong culture of like dinner parties yeah food is food I mean drinking obviously but food is a huge part of the social culture here so I think it's really cool that you were able to like build what you want to do with your life Mm -hmm. out of that yeah I think that's so beautiful it's like an excuse to keep socializing around a dinner table (laughs) yeah so when you cook something how often are you relying on a recipe and how often are you like coming up with things Mm. on the fly um it's a good question I get most honestly most all of my recipe inspiration comes from Instagram reels Um, same (laughs) and so I will often take the Instagram reels watch them and write down what they're doing I have like an 80 page like cookbook document on my Google Docs but I'll take these videos and then I'll sort of write down what they're doing and like sort of take notes on it for like 10 minutes and then 
think about it, pair it with something else. Usually sides I tend to make up. But now I'm at this point where, one, I I don't feel as happy with the end result when it's not my own. Sometimes you you have to follow a recipe because things can be really techie and I didn't go to school. Like I don't have that kind of like perfect intuition. But with other things that are a little bit more simple and have free reign, um, I like to make it my own in any way that I can. So even if I am following a recipe, I'll always add something else Mm -hmm. or, you know, do something a little bit differently. Like there's this um, Instagram food blogger named Justine Snacks. I don't know if you've seen her before. She's great. Um, She's made this video. There's always like deeper meanings behind her videos. She made one where she said like, somebody had called her out in the comments for making a recipe that was similar to other recipes online. And she was like, listen, like, we're nothing without getting inspiration from other people. But like the second that you add a little twist on something, suddenly you've made it your own. Mm -hmm. And as soon as you add those twists and it turns out well, you're like, whoa, this is really me. Like, this is like my dish. It's not somebody else's. Mm -hmm. So I always try to I always try to make it my own in some way, if not in every way. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm I'm proud to be at a point where I feel like I can make those calls because I know enough now which is really satisfying yeah so this is just like out of curiosity but if you take a recipe and you quote-unquote make it your own what's like a move that you would do with something that you feel like is quintessentially you in a recipe um I think it's I don't know it'll always be like adding a different profile so like if I feel like there's not enough acid then you have to add more acid because like I think that every dish needs acid acid. Mm -hmm. and not every recipe developer thinks that so and you'll notice that from their recipes um or like adding cheese or like putting a different sauce than what the recipe would suggest Mm -hmm. or um I don't know if something says like something does I read a recipe for a roast cabbage the other day because I wanted to make roast cabbage and then I ended up developing my own recipe because I thought all of the ones were bad but it was like I was it was like uh they didn't call to sear the cabbage on the recipe and I was like I would never not sear it like that that's something that I would absolutely do because color is so important and you want that like crisp yeah thing so I think it's just like honest opinion and like following through on your opinion and your intuition is the flair (laughs) yeah and definitely knowing what you're doing I feel like I I've definitely learned so much about cooking just being at St. Andrews and living in flats I remember when I moved into a flat spring of first year I walked into the kitchen on the first night and I was like oh lord I don't even know how to cook rice yeah like I had never cooked rice I knew how to make eggs and toast and like that was it so it's been an upward trajectory but I (laughs) I still like am very safe I feel like with my cooking I don't Mm. really stray from the things that I know I like um but I want to talk about your summer at Hawksmoor yeah so (laughs) how much did you know going into it and like did you have to audition like did you know someone on the inside (laughs) like how did that all work um so I that summer I was such a baby I was I had just turned 20 mm-hmm. and I it was after my first year living in flats um it had only been like six months of actually taking myself seriously and thinking that I was talented um which was a huge like obstacle I think at the beginning um and I wanted to be in London for the summer that's what I knew and I I love Ottolinghi, so I was like, I would love to work for Ottolinghi. And so I was emailing with this HR woman to try and get a job at Ottolinghi. And eventually, like, they said that I could stodge there for no pay. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to keep your name in my contact. Apparently, Ottolinghi is sort of notorious for that, um, like their stodge processes. But mm-hmm. I wanted to get paid. So I went and on. And what is Ottolinghi for those who oh, might not know? Ottolinghi, Yodamo Ottolinghi is a very talented chef, um, and 
he has a few restaurants in London, tons of cookbooks and delis too. And it's Middle Eastern food. Um, yum. Yeah. Yum. yum. <laughs> and he's like, I don't know, the way it's pretty complicated recipes, but the way that, in my opinion, the way that he writes out his recipes, it's like anyone can do it. And suddenly you're left with like this dish that is so impressive so impressive and the steps to get there were total layman's terms mm-hmm. um because a recipe can be so intimidating when they use big words and instead of like chop they say like shift not or something like that yeah um so yeah that's that's auto and okay. i love their restaurants nopi is like one of the best restaurants in london i think mm. um but yeah so i i wanted to work there but then I wanted to get paid. So then that day I went on Indeed, which is like like a job portal. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I wanted to cook. So I was just applying. I applied to one that day, which was Hawksmore. They needed a sous chef. And I didn't know any of the terms. Like I, I was a baby. And so I applied for a sous chef. And then the following day I got a call from their hiring guy, who was really nice. Um, and he was like, come in for... You sort of do have to audition. You have to do a day's work. Okay. Um, and I went in in my sneakers and like chefs wear clogs. I was wearing sneakers and he was like, by the way, that's pretty dangerous. You should get some clogs. Um, what is dangerous about sneakers? It's like if you dropped a knife, it would go right through. Oh, yeah. True. So clogs. And yeah, I don't know. And shockingly, clogs are very comfortable. I got a pair of Crocs the next day. Wait, so did you work in Crocs all summer? Um pretty much it's like crocs but they're completely closed toed it's okay. like you know those trendy birkenstocks that are like, yeah, like sort of backless yeah. yeah they're like those oh okay. some some chefs do wear birkenstocks oh interesting yeah i never knew that uh-huh um and so yeah i went in to do a trial shift as the sous chef at hawksmoor which is like a major london steak restaurant um and the sous chef is like the second in the command of the kitchen like yeah usually you need like 10 or 15 years of experience whoa and so I go in and I'm like doing a trial shift with the sous chef and I don't think anybody realized that I would like I would be coming in mm-hmm. um I think they were expecting somebody who was a sous chef and so I just like grilled steaks with him all day and we chatted and I'm I'm very good at taking one criticism but also taking guidance like I like to be told what to do Mm -hmm. so as soon as like I'm given a task I do it and then I come back and I ask for more that's just like everybody's like oh I would love to be my own boss someday yeah I would love to be my own boss in the terms of writing but like I would never I I I like having a boss basically Mm -hmm. and I think that they liked that I mean there you need one thing to be a chef and that's just um listening skills um and so yeah I did a trial shift went upstairs and he was like, we're not going to offer you sous chef, um, but we are hiring for a chef de partie. So you can do chef de partie in the larder section. And he was basically like, when can you start? And so I got a pair of clogs and I went in two days later. Wow. Um, so what's the difference What's the difference in responsibility between sous chef and chef de partie? So usually the head chef is on the expo, which is where the plates pass through. And then the head chef is correcting and ensuring that everything is quality and good and cooked right and everything's being sent out in the right order and and it's up to restaurant standard um this is like in in their kitchen specifically the head chef was on expo and the sous chef was really like firing and firing like putting things on the heat and like doing the major distinctive plates Mm -hmm. so like the sous chef was like on the open fire doing like the Chateaubriands and the fillets. Okay. And I was chef de partie. So he's like, th- them two are overseeing everything. And then chef de parties have their own responsibility for plates. Like I probably had like seven plates that I was firing for the menu. And I'm the only person who does those plates. So everybody has their own little section. There's a sauce person, and then there's the steak person, and then there's this and that prep person. Mm-hmm. Um, then the pastry section, they have their own persons. Wow. So how many people are there 
behind the scenes? We were a pretty small kitchen for such a large scale restaurant. Um, I'd say I usually had a partner, especially on busy days. There were two of us um, and we worked together and then head chef, sous chef, three other people on heat, three pastry, one prep uh, and then KPs who do dishes. Mm-hmm. So I'd say we were, and like, I, I'm saying like square feet, we were pretty small, but probably 15 to 20 people in the kitchen at all times. Wow. And then obviously you have the waiters and waitresses coming through and the busboys. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, yeah, it was really fun. I mean, the best thing about working in a kitchen like that is like no day is ever the same, which is so great because when you're working 17 hour shifts, you need like stimulation constantly or else you'll pass out. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and we were working in um that heat wave. Yeah. In in London a few summers yeah, ago. I remember. It, working in a heat wave over charcoal fires is pretty difficult. With no AC, I assume, right? Uh I actually had one unit that was pointing towards me, but most okay. everyone else didn't. That's it's because really I was lucky. working with vegetables. So like the vegetables oh. all obviously have to stay cold. Yeah. But everybody else didn't have AC. And yeah. I was so blessed because wow. I I couldn't have I wouldn't have fared well if yeah. I was, yeah. But um, yeah, it's really fun. It's like a waltz constantly, and mm-hmm. there's yelling, but you have to understand what everybody is saying. There are people who are speaking different languages, and, you, and they're probably talking about you, but you'll never know, and you can't ask. <laughs> um, and it's it's great, yeah. How would you say like the kitchen environment at Hawksmore compares to the Bear? Oh my God, I. Love the bear. Uh-huh. I think the bear did such a fantastic job. And that is definitely because they had people on the team who had worked in restaurants before. Yeah. Um, Like Maddie Matheson. He's like a social media influencer. He's, he's a cook. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love him. Um, and I think that they got these little nuances of the kitchen so well. Like drinking ice water out of like a deli container is like yeah like you don't notice those things in the show but when you experience those things yourself you're like like fuck yeah they they got it that's so real um I love the bear I think that they did a fantastic job Mm -hmm. and I think they deserve like all of the attention Mm -hmm. yeah cool very honest show yeah, I agree. I mean, I definitely have not worked in like a restaurant restaurant, but I worked in, I'd say probably similar to what you were doing in Maine, like mm-hmm. a summer community kitchen. And we were making lunches for like, I'd say like 300 people a day, six days a week. And it was just like grimy. Yeah. Like so grimy. Yeah. And our shifts were super short because it was just lunch. So it'd be like, four to six hours like seven Mm. hours max and then I was done but I just remember at the end of every day I was like I have immense amounts of respect for people who work in food service and like make it their life yeah I think it's one of the hardest jobs yeah and there's like this whole other level with especially the depiction in the bear where it's like the grime you reminded me of it Mm -hmm. in my experience because we were such a high-end restaurant we always risked health evaluations coming in which did happen while I worked there yeah and so like it's like tip-top standard and you're you're firing like 500 to 600 plates a shift but your station needs to be spotless and I remember I spilled some sauce on my chef whites and I was told to change like you need to keep these institutions like spick and span or else you will close yeah and that's the sad thing about rest the restaurant industry right now is like any minor slip up uh destroys you and you can't succeed anymore would you say that's because of COVID no I think I think it's just this century you know health standards are super uh, I mean COVID probably had something to do with it but I think that people in the 2000s like are super obsessed with the fact that you have a five-star rating for Mm -hmm. hygiene Mm -hmm. and you know I wouldn't go to a restaurant that had less than that probably unless I was expecting to eat something sort of like "Mm." yeah to be fair I'd probably eat anywhere that that might have been a lie but still you you judge based on those kinds of things everybody asks me like oh don't you want to open a restaurant 
like I can't wait to eat at your restaurant when you open one. <laughs> it's the dream. But yeah. like you need endless amounts of money that you're okay with losing. Yeah. And you need to be comfortable with the fact that in the first year, you are more than likely going to close. Yeah. And so like as soon as you grapple with that, I think that's when restaurants succeed is when they're willing to take the risks in the first year that makes them stand out because they have nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like obviously you have to have the motivation to pull through mm-hmm. and like make it work. But that first year is like nitty gritty you don't sleep yeah kind of thing and i don't think that i would be comfortable doing that until when i'm financially comfortable and to like i had that confidence where i could like i know that i could pull through in something that difficult Mm -hmm. um and like the right training under my belt too yeah but it would be the dream just not anytime soon (laughs) if you were going to open a restaurant what cuisine would you make it Ooh. Oh, gosh. That's such a hard question. Um, I don't know if I would have a specific cuisine. I think that if I were to open a restaurant, it would be less about a cuisine and more about, like, me. Mm -hmm. Um, Because of the way that I was raised, moving around so much, and um, my parents were constantly traveling and taking us with them, you know, road trips instead of flying always. Um, I've eaten so much and learned so much about culture through food. Um, and I think that each dish would have to be something that like said something about me. And I don't think that that could be defined by a cuisine. Mm -hmm. It couldn't be, it would be like the anti-rigid restaurant. Yeah. 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 That makes so much sense. Yeah. I love that. (laughs) I would totally visit your restaurant. Thank you. (laughs) I'd need you to. (laughs) So speaking of learning, tell us about your dissertation. Oh my gosh. I turned it in on Monday. Oh, congrats. Um, Thank you. Yay. Uh, I wrote my dissertation for anthropology on the feast and how the feast is basically like an arena for the reproduction reproduction and negotiation of social hierarchy and class distinctions and social belonging in America. Um, and yeah, so it was, it was defined by three data chapters and a theoretical framework that is all anthropology. Um, and the first chapter was discussing Thanksgiving as a performance of, you know, cultural capital and how it creates this, distinction between the classes in America. Um, And then the second chapter was about wedding feasts and the like big white wedding that's so mainstream in America and the way that it reproduces gender hierarchy. Mm. Um, And also throughout each chapter, but specifically in the second chapter, um, I used data pulling from brides.com. And so I was like- What is brides.com? It's like- articles on like how to throw the right wedding basically. okay and so I was being informed similarly to how many brides planning their wedding would be informed um and I realized the mainstream wedding pushes such an interesting agenda of like the perfect all-american person or bride mm-hmm. um that isn't inclusive so it it's pretty bound by Christian values and whiteness and middle to upper class existence, um, which was very interesting to learn. But like as I was writing it, I was understanding these things. So it was changing constantly. Yeah. Um, And then the third chapter was about the Northwest potlatch, which um, was outlawed in America and Canada in the 20th century, 19th and 20th century, I think. Um, And... In contrast, I discussed Thanksgiving and it's like glorification as a feast versus the disdain for the potlatch and the way that Thanksgiving, in a sense, completely uplifts the, I'm going to use quotation marks, good American and the good immigrant, which would be those who came over on the Mayflower 
um, and completely excludes anybody who doesn't sit at the Thanksgiving table, which would be Native Americans or people who simply don't celebrate um, anyone other than the quote unquote good immigrant. Um, uh, it's interesting. I learned so much about the sociocultural landscape of the country mm-hmm. um, and the this true blueprint that we have of who's welcome and who's American yeah, um, and who can be heard and who can't. And it was incredible because I learned all of this and I learned about it through talking about the feast. Yeah. And so you learn... I also, at the end, I called for more anthropologists to do more work on feasting studies because there really isn't that much. Um, and judging from the what I came out of it with, the conclusions that I had made, I was like, there needs to be way more work done on these kinds of events because you learn, like, everything is hidden in these dinner tables and there are so many feasts everybody engages with feasts you said like dinner party culture at st andrews we're yeah. feasting every week yeah um and and so much there's so much to be said about the hierarchy that it creates um and so yeah i i had a lot of fun with it that is fascinating yeah. so the northwest potlatch what is that and why was it outlawed um so the northwest native american tribes of america and canada um and communities they use the so the potlatch was basically an event a celebratory event where individuals could trade um goods with each other and in trading you have this notion of reciprocity so they're constantly giving and taking and things grow in value and there's interest involved and Um, people will spend months creating or making these gifts to give and take their gifts. And there's a feast that happens with it and dancing and uh, every community has sort of a different way of going about it, but that's the structure. Um, And when the colonizers came over, they... There's a few arguments to be made about why it was outlawed. One of them would be the instinct for the colonists to say, I am uncomfortable with the fact that somebody who I view as barbaric and less than myself is engaging in the same practices that I engage in, say, like Christmas. Um, And it's making this greater fissure between them to separate them Mm -hmm. but then there's the argument of the colonists wanted everybody to assimilate into a christian a good christian worker um and because of the preparation that had to be done for the potlatch they couldn't work the jobs that the colonists wanted them to work okay um so they outlawed it and because nobody really cared about Indian law, quote unquote, Indian laws back then, um, the petitions and things they did in response to the law, there was really one guy who was spearheading it in Canada, but the the petitions that the Native Americans did weren't heard because nobody cared. Um, and so it was outlawed. And eventually some of them, some people assimilated, some people just gave up on the potlatch. Others went underground. So they would hide the potlatch under the guise of Christian charity. Wow. Um, And if they did that well, then it couldn't be policed because they're doing exactly what the colonizers want them to do. Mm -hmm. Some people got arrested. There was like one potlatch raid where like 50 people got arrested. Um, And then it was, the, the law was repealed in the 50s, I believe. But by then because of no support and it's policing it's pretty much gone it's not really practiced anymore um yeah it's a very it's a very interesting a lot of anthropologists focus on the potlatch because Franz Boas studied it Mm -hmm. um and so it's it's a major topic in anthropology that's such an interesting juxtaposition between that and like the wedding 
yeah the american wedding which is like yeah which obviously you have come to define as being so exclusive mm-hmm. um that's really fascinating how did yeah. you split it up because america is such a big country with so totally. many subcultures yes how did you manage that so i mean eventually the subculture became the mainstream american person um but also throughout I'm constantly analyzing my scope and acknowledging one bias and two, um, how short this essay is for the topic that I'm discussing. Yeah. And I made parallels between feasts and language. Um, and I made an acknowledgement in the introduction that I wish that I wasn't bound by just a few examples because I would love to talk about every feast and what it means, but that would be impossible for anyone to do because it'd be like making a dictionary of every word in every language and the context of the word. It's Mm -hmm. just, it can't be done in 10,000 words. It can't be done in 100,000 words. Um, And the anthropologist Mary Douglas, who I base a lot of my theory on, she calls for the importance of cross-cultural comparison, not in a way to find similarities, Granted, there are a lot of similarities, but more in a way to find distinctions. Um, And the way to do that is by using small scale exemplars, (laughs) small scale exemplars, and um, really analyzing them on a symbolic level rather than making sweeping generalizations, which Claude Levi Strauss did um, in his structuralist framework. Uh, And those sort of generalizations are dangerous and anthropologists talk about it all the time. Um, In the grading of my essays, they'll always pick out words and be like, generalization, generalization, Mm. you can't generalize. Yeah. Um, And also, anthropology really isn't about finding truth. It's about, like, finding qualitative data um, and putting it forward and analyzing it. Yeah. Um, And so I just had to choose a few figure it out and then try to get pretty specific about it Mm -hmm. but I also acknowledge throughout that I can't be as specific as I wish that I could be because the essay is just too short yeah 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 that's really interesting because right now my history class that I'm taking is it's a requirement for history to do a year-long class Mm. and I wish I had done it in third year but I got to this year and I was like oh I have to take a year-long class so I kind of just ended up in this class um accidentally in a way (laughs) and it's the history of darwinism and studying how the history of science has changed since the 1850s but right now the last couple of weeks we've been learning about anthropology specifically and how the study of anthropology as a legitimate science came to be Mm -hmm. and it's really fascinating to hear you talk about how complex and varied it is and like your professor is saying don't generalize because Mm -hmm. in the start of anthropology they like what we're learning right now is they had just come to see evolution as a real thing and like humans as evolved from apes or the converse of that would be or maybe the adverse I don't know the opposite of that would be that humans were descended from Adam and Eve but that man was created perfect Mm -hmm. and so then there's like all this racial stuff and they're like oh our different civilizations just like quote degenerated forms of humans or or did humans evolve from apes and then create different cultures Mm -hmm. which like obviously now that's the common belief that like we evolved and cultures came to be but it was so hard for people in the 19th century to wrap their head around the idea of that when their like whole perception of the world was so clouded by race and class and education levels and like elite Victorian society, mm-hmm. which is like a whole study within itself. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting to hear like the what other people are studying and then think about how it like overlaps with what I'm learning. Yeah. It's very interesting. Um, I was talking with a professor the other day and because I'll always feel like, oh, we studied this in this class in second year. 
And then she said, um, every course at the school, one, it's not crafted in this way, but it th- they will relate to each other because mm-hmm. we're at a university where like you're st- you're studying, but like you're studying everything. And like if you were to study every course at this school, everything would interlap because you're just learning about the world. Yeah. And the way that you learn about the world is similar in every single course. So like you might have the same book on your reading list for anthropology of politics and governance as somebody who's studying like English portraiture would have, Mm -hmm. Um, which is interesting because it makes for great debate at dinner parties. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, absolutely. That's awesome. Um, What's like the most surprising thing you learned in the process of writing your diss? Ooh. Like a little fun fact. Oh, gosh. Um, I learned about there's there was this paper that um, a group of four people, some if not all of them are Native Americans, did about U.S. presidential speeches for like the annual Thanksgiving speech. Mm -hmm. And they split up forms of silence in three ways. Um, One was silence that like they just didn't say anything about the Native American condition when it comes to Thanksgiving. Another silence would be they mentioned Native Americans, but only in in like terms of gratitude and friendship and, you know, the whole Native American Thanksgiving myth. Mm -hmm. And then the other one would be completely acknowledging the trauma that was inflicted, like the genocide that happened. Yeah. Um, In no U.S. presidential speech for Thanksgiving has the latter ever been practiced. Mm -hmm. Um, Republicans will engage with complete silence. Democrats usually engage with the second form of like talking about them in friendship terms. So no U.S. president has ever acknowledged in any way, not even just in the speeches, in any way. the um, They've never apologized for the genocide on behalf of the nation. Obama signed a bill like the Native American resolution and apology bill or something but never spoke about it on the podium. So it raises the question of like, is it an apology if you didn't apologize? Um, You just signed signed something. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I mean, because it's so evident like through history that like this did actually happen um, and it wasn't as friendly as we thought. The The first Thanksgiving dinner was a Thanksgiving in um celebration of the defeat of the Pequoy Indians. Wow. Um yeah, that's not what we're told. No, at all. the myth is is a myth. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Um most all of what we're told and what we perform in elementary school on mm-hmm. Thanksgiving every year is not true. It mm-hmm. is fable. Um and that's honest and leaders will know that. Um but it would dismantle the like nation glorifying feeling that patriots have if that sort of apology were to happen on a grand scale yeah um and so yeah those forms of silence and and learning that no apology has ever been made on behalf of the nation Mm -hmm. um is yeah yeah i'm thinking about now like what would happen if a president were to fully apologize Mm. for that and i'm like something something bad would probably happen i feel like the the super far right would probably burn something or go crazy in some regard like it's just it's really upsetting that the culture of the states is so extreme that like the right thing can't be yeah presented or like acknowledged i mean everything is political and yeah that that would be a political move absolutely um, and it's it's interesting to think about the kind of backlash that would happen for something as simple as saying the colonizers screwed up mm-hmm. and we really uh fragmented your future and i'm sorry yeah um but i don't think that will be happening anytime soon mm-hmm. <laughs> unfortunately 
Yes, such as America yeah. in the current day. Uh-huh. Um, so I also want to talk about your writing for the guide. And something I noticed, like one of the first times that I read your Substack was your writing style. <laughs> I think it's so just like natural and easy to read and I can hear your voice in it which I think is so special when you're reading something and I think it takes not a certain kind of person but a certain kind of ability to write and a comfortability with writing Mm -hmm. and it has to come naturally to get that um it feels like a conversation with the reader Mm -hmm. and so I'm wondering do you feel like your writing ability has grown as you've done the guide because you started Mm -hmm. that before you started your blog right yeah yeah Yeah. so do you how do you feel like your writing style has changed or evolved as you've been writing articles for the magazine um I think it's changed exponentially um I've never written in that kind of format before um because this interest this interest for me is so new when you think about it I only started probably three years ago yeah um and I, my good friend sent me a listing on LinkedIn for the guide and I applied and then spoke to the editor and then I got a job and they published my application, um, article. Whoa. Yeah, it was. And that for me was, I think everybody at this age sort of struggles with confidence and especially like when you're applying for something when you're 19. Yeah. Um, And that for me was sort of a wake up call in saying like, you can do hard things and you're good at them too. Mm -hmm. And people will take you seriously. Yeah, exactly. That's so valuable. Having like a business call is so like, I'm not a, it's, I I feel like a kid, but I'm not a kid and I'm allowed to like take myself seriously Mm -hmm. in something that I'm interested in. And I'm allowed to think that I'm good at it too. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that my writing style evolved in confidence but my style interestingly the reason why I think it's so personal is because I have such a loud internal monologue Hmm. and that's what it is Uh especially on my blog it is just my internal monologue and I'm always deeping things and making things into bigger deals than they should be so everything has a bigger lesson when it comes to food and that's just like my overthinking Mm -hmm. and that's just how it comes across on paper and for the guide, I think I've just become more confident and more curious and like learning that learning that people like the way you're doing something means that you continue to do it, but like in an, in a in a better way mm-hmm. um, and a more educated way. And like I know which article gets more clicks, and so that style is more fun. People like that, but I'm never gonna. I don't know. I feel like it'll change and continue to be better and I'll take criticism from editors and adjust. Um, But realistically, it it probably will stay very similar to how it is right now because it's just it'll age with me because it's just my internal monologue. Yeah. Which I think is fun. Yeah. It's very therapeutic. I love it. I love how (laughs) how unpolished and like colloquial it is. Yeah. I think it's really nice. And I feel like there's also definitely a lot of similarity between the guide and your blog. Yeah, It's like you can hear you in both of them, which I think yeah. is super cool. And also nice that you have a platform like the guide that mm-hmm. lets you put your voice into the articles. And that's yeah. like part of the brand kind of. Yeah, exactly. That's super special. Um, no, I, I love I love writing for them. And it's really like I choose the pitches that I send in and mm-hmm. sometimes they'll pick um, which ones they like better or say I like them all, do them all. And so it's all my own ideas. Um, I'm not being told to do anything. Um, And then they're edited and published, and that's that. And then I do a different one. Um, So it's a really great job to have. Yeah. Um, And it's a huge, it was a huge confidence thing, I think, working for them. Yeah. What's your favorite article that you've written or favorite idea that you've come up with that they haven't chosen? Uh, I think that they've chosen all of the ideas that I thought were really good. Okay, which is that's good. good. <laughs> um, so I, I couldn't answer that one, but my favorite article I've written for them. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably have two. They're 
was one that I wrote about breakups Mm. and like it's called like the recipe for broken heart or something like that and it was discussing ways to eat that will make you feel good um and in the in the narrative of like getting over a breakup because there's this movie trope of broken-hearted women eating pints of ice cream and chocolates and knocking out of bed and there's a historical accuracy to that um, which was interesting to learn. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like an evolution thing because when wow. when partners would die or leave, they would have to basically like hoard food mm-hmm. to keep warm and full. Is that women specifically? Women, yeah. Wow. Um, because wow. they were, because the the male was usually responsible for bring, bringing back food. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, but that that was interesting. But I learned so much. And when I learn a lot and I implement it in my own life, I take that as a huge win. Um, so I learned about, like, foods that have tryptophan, and which increases serotonin. So it's, mm-hmm. like, eating turkey and eggs and tofu increases serotonin. You feel good afterwards. Wow. And probiotics. And, like, I learned about kefir, and I drink kefir all the time now. Uh-huh. Um... What is kefir? Kefir is like, it's a live probiotic Uh that like goes directly to your gut and heals it. Is it like a milk? It's a dairy product. Okay. Yeah. They have it at, um, where do they have it? Sainsbury's has it. So it's Holland and Barrett. Okay. Yeah. Because I've definitely seen it around. I'm like, what is that? I love it. (laughs) And I have a friend here who grows her own. Whoa. Because it's sort of like, you know how with sourdough starters, you like feed them and there's mm-hmm. a mother. Mm-hmm. Kefir is the exact same way. Whoa. And so you like add a gallon of milk to it every week. Yeah. And like take out, do something else. I don't know. It's, so it's it's milk and the like starter thing. It's milk and I don't know if it's a starter. Um, it's like a, maybe it's like a colony uh-huh. even <laughs> of, of gut healthy probiotics. And it's interesting because even the bottled ones, I drink the Biotiful one from Sainsbury's. Mm-hmm. Even the bottled ones, like after a day, if you drink half and then put it in the fridge and then the next day you drink the other half, you'll notice that it gets stronger Whoa. as you leave it out uh-huh. because of, of the like the organisms that are in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you drink it for a week, you can tell the difference mentally. Yeah. Um, and you're... Like, digestion is so much better, and, like, just overall, like, your microbiome biome is so much happier. Whoa. And you can obviously tell. Wait, I'm yeah. literally going to go buy some it's, after this. It's very interesting. Um, that is amazing. Yeah, that was – and then my second favorite um, article was on a restaurant on, – on, about a restaurant in London called Mria, mm-hmm. which is a Ukrainian restaurant. Mm. Um and I'm actually talking to them right now. We're going to do an interview, I think, next week as, a, like, a follow-up article. It's the best performing article on, for the guide. Um, and I interviewed a friend of mine named Staz, who's from Ukraine. Yeah. And so, basically, I talked about the food at Maria, and I also talked about Ukraine. And, like, because this restaurant was opened by refugees who got stuck in London, and they only hire Ukrainian res- refugees as well. And their whole ethos is about, like, spreading awareness about the beauty of Ukraine through their food traditions and cultures. Um, But it's interesting because I never learned about Ukraine before the war. And so now the only view I have on it is through this lens of war. And it's, I mean, it's an incredibly beautiful country and it's rich in history so rich it's gone through so much and it means that like the traditions that they have and the sense of community that they have in their culture is so established um and so this restaurant uses food and their culinary traditions um to spread that like awareness so that people's opinion of ukraine is not just about war and Mm -hmm. more so about the culture and heritage that would survive with it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was very interesting. Wow. More on that next week. I cannot <laughs> wait to read that article. Yeah. Wow. That is so cool. So 
we're almost out of time. I just have a couple of wrap-up questions. Okay. This is something I've always wondered. Whenever <laughs> I see your your Mallory's Calories posts, I'm like, how does this girl have the time to do mm. school and cook, like, the world's most extravagant meals yeah. with, with ingredients from the tree or from the butcher or, like, all <laughs> the little sustainable nooks yeah. and crannies of St. Andrews? Like, how do you set aside the time to do that? I think I set aside the time intentionally because I would go insane I wouldn't be able to perform in the other areas of my life if I didn't do this mm-hmm. um I get like visibly more fragile when I haven't practiced in a while mm-hmm. um I have like more anxiety when I haven't been active uh, I I don't know I I feel worse when I'm not engaged so if I'm feeling really stressed or defeated in a different area of my life I will say I need to cook and eventually I will have to cook Mm -hmm. because it's like when I think it's when I it's my creative outlet it's like my me time and also it's a source of like immense pride um so even if I don't have time I need to make the time because it's just like Mm self-care at this point um and when I was writing my dissertation, I wasn't, like, at the very end in December, I wasn't cooking that much. And I was so stressed. Like, I was so stressed. Yeah. Um, but I didn't have a choice. I had to finish the paper. Um, and I never work on school at night, ever. Mm-hmm. So I'll close my computer at 7, and that's I'm off. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually I'll cook after that. But sometimes I'm like, I can't think. I can't, like, sleep and tomorrow I'm not going to work on school and I'm going to just take that defeat and that L for school and I'm going to get my mojo back and cook something great tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I get so excited and I'm like a different person afterwards. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciated your point earlier about how it feels in your body when you cook. I think that 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 is something that I'm really leaning into these days Mm -hmm. is – understanding that like the things that are good for me and the things that are leading me in the right path are the things that you can literally feel impact you and make you feel better um so I think that's so cool and yeah that's awesome (laughs) how often do you cook like something big whether it's like for a dinner party Mm. or for yourself um I usually take the opportunity to cook something big like tacky and like impressive one if I'm having people over for dinner who I don't cook for often or haven't eaten my food before I'll cook something really nice for them um I don't know it's you maybe it's like I want them to have a nice meal a lot of people don't have nice meals when they're at school Mm -hmm. or it's an it's just an excuse for me to do it um and then other times if I have nothing to do and it's a nice day I'll cook something really nice I don't know why I think it has something to do with like the light that comes through the window in the kitchen Mm -hmm. and like the music that I'd play and like the birds are chirping and I'm like making flatbread that's beautiful (laughs) wow it's a it's a good feel and I it's if I'm feeling confident in myself is usually when I cook something super chaotic and interesting Mm -hmm. because I'm like yeah I can do that easy and I'll do it. And then it usually turns out great because you can do anything if you have confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's honestly sometimes the harder things that I make myself do in the kitchen is like I'm like gifting myself it, which is a bit backwards. But yeah. Yeah. And you mentioned in the very beginning that cooking has become like your your passion like your mm-hmm. go-to your thing obviously as per this conversation um but where do you see it taking you in the future whether it's like right after graduation mm-hmm. or two years from now or even beyond that yeah um I would like to continue writing about food forever um I have so much to say and I will always have something to say because food is always going to be there um And so, like, my dream job would be, like, in the style of working for the guide, of just eating and talking about it and having opinions about it 
um, especially with you know the the climate crisis. There is so much to be said about food and sustainable yeah. eating, yeah, um, which is a constant theme in my writing. Um, so that's like the dream. The dream dream would be like living on a farm and growing my own food and then like having a cookbook. Uh-huh. And, like that's that's my dream. Like uh, you know that guy Julius yes. with the yellow cookbook. <laughs> yes. I have that. I love him. I do He's know so him. cute. I love him too. That's the dream. <laughs> and like having a ton of animals. That's it. But uh-huh. also, I'm comfortable in because I know those jobs are hard to find, um, especially when you're not that experienced. Um, I will always be comfortable working in a kitchen. Mm -hmm. And so if I am straight out of school, I haven't gotten a job at a magazine that I want to work at, I'm moving to a city and setting up camp and getting a job in a kitchen because there is always a demand for chefs. Yeah. Um, And like with this confidence that I've gotten from all of this, everything that we've talked about, because that's like the central theme, I know and I'm comfortable in saying, like, I can get a job in a good kitchen. And that's so comforting to know is, like, I have a talent that I like to use mm-hmm. and somebody else would like to use it, too. Yeah. Um, and whether that be in a kitchen or for my writing, I'm happy with either. Yeah. That sounds yeah. like a really solid plan. Yeah. <laughs> you can't go wrong. Yeah. Oh, knock on wood. Knock on wood. <laughs> I think you'll do great. Thank you. Well, Mallory, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank you for having me. If you want to check out Mallory's info, uh, (laughs) be sure to follow her food Instagram, which is, again, at Mallory's Calories. That's with two S's on calories. Her blog, which is mallorycalories.substack.com, with only one S after calories. And her articles in The Guide Magazine, which can be found at theguidemagazine.org slash food dash drink. If you love The Worm and want to follow along for updates, follow the Instagram, which is at theworm underscore podcast. As always, thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>